little know ye who's coming, little know ye who's coming, little know ye who's coming, if John Quincy not be coming. You might have noticed that today's episode started a little differently than most. I recently discovered a trove of old campaign songs, which is awesome. So we'll be starting each episode with that present campaign song if it's available. And I do encourage you to check them out. I don't know if you caught it, but John Quincy's campaign song says plague and pestilence are coming if you don't vote for him. So way to motivate the people there. On with the episode. This is the Abridged Presidential Histories with Kenny Ryan. John Quincy Adams might be my favorite of America's early presidents, which is kind of ironic because he's easily the biggest failure. As president, John Quincy Adams will accomplish nothing, absolutely nothing. So obviously that's not why I'm impressed with him. I'm impressed with him because after losing the presidency, his hometown is going to send him back to Washington, D.C. as a humble congressman. And when he returns, he's going to discover a fight he never knew he had in him as Congress's fiercest opponent to slavery. He will roar so loud that Southern congressmen will pass a series of unconstitutional gag rules just to try to shut him up. But they will fail. That's why I think John Quincy is awesome. He'll also be one of our greatest early diplomats and win one of the craziest presidential elections in our nation's history. When five major candidates run in 1824, and the person who got the most votes and the most electors did not become president. Yeah, it's going to be controversial. Let's dive in. Before John Quincy becomes a vocal opponent of slavery, and before he becomes president, he'll spend the first half of his life as one of the most successful American diplomats in history. He will negotiate the treaties that acquire Florida, secure the Canadian border, and grant us claim to the Oregon Territory. And he'll be witness to one of history's greatest dramas. He's going to be in Russia during Napoleon's invasion, and he'll be in Paris when Napoleon returns from exile. There's going to be a lot of cool stuff in this episode, so let's start now with how he became that international diplomat. Let's start, as we do, in the beginning. So, John Quincy Adams was born on July 11th, 1767, in the town of Braintree, Massachusetts, just outside Boston. John Quincy's father was John Adams, as in founding father and eventual president John Adams, as in not afraid to tell you when you're wrong, John Adams, which, you know, what son doesn't want that in a father? Being John Adams' son is obviously going to have quite the impact on young John Quincy as he's growing up. The first impact is that because John Adams was always away working for the revolution when John Quincy was a boy, and because everyone John Quincy met kept telling him what an impressive and important father he had, John Quincy developed a bit of hero worship for his old man. Nothing crazy 
but when John Adams told his son to focus on schoolwork if you ever want to amount to anything, John Quincy listened. Here's an example of a letter he wrote his absent father. Sir, would you give me some instructions with regard to my time and advise me how to proportion my studies and my play? And I will keep them and endeavor to follow them. I am, dear sir, with a present determination of growing better, yours. He wrote that when he was nine years old. That's crazy. With John Adams running all over the place furthering his political career, oh, I mean the revolution, John Quincy's mother, the impressive Abigail Adams, was left to run the household and raise the children. And when the local school shut down because the only teacher went to fight in the revolution, Abigail took over most of John Quincy's education, too, and she did a darn good job. One of John Quincy's most formative childhood memories came at the start of the Revolutionary War. The sound of cannon fire reached the Adams household, so Abigail and the children did what any family would do, and they climbed up a nearby hill to see what was going on. And they could see across the harbor as British soldiers attacked a fortified American hilltop next to Boston in a battle that became known as Bunker Hill. And the larger Revolutionary War narrative This is a battle that's fought before George Washington arrives outside Boston to take over the army. 1,000 British soldiers died in the day's fighting, and John Quincy could see them climbing the hill, looking like tiny ants in the distance, and being repelled time and time again until the American soldiers ran out of ammunition and were finally overrun and killed to a man. It was a memory that would stick with John Quincy the rest of his life and fuel a repulsion toward war. In 1778, when John Quincy was 11, and as the Revolutionary War was still going on, John Adams was appointed minister to France, and he decided to take John Quincy with him across the ocean to Paris. The journey was a perilous one. British ships, which would have loved to capture and hang a traitor like Adams, pursued the vessel across the ocean before losing it in a huge thunderstorm. The storm caused waves so massive they threatened to capsize the ship. A bolt of lightning struck one of the sailors and he died raving mad. On the other side of the storm, the American ship engaged in a battle at sea with a British merchant and captured the vessel. And John Quincy was there for all of this madness at 11. Whoa! But John Quincy and his father did eventually land in France, where John Quincy enrolled in schools more prestigious than anything that existed in America. After a few years of study, which included picking up some foreign languages, 14-year-old John Quincy joined an American envoy to St. Petersburg, Russia, to serve as his translator in the court of the Tsarina as they sought recognition for American independence. One of the greatest careers in American diplomacy was set to begin. Okay, so John Quincy is going to do so many things as a diplomat that it's just not possible to get into it all. And I know, because when I wrote it all down, it was a billion words long. So instead, I'm going to tell you one funny story one epic story, and one career-defining story from his years as a diplomat. First, the funny story. In 1797, so this is 16 years after John Quincy went on that first mission to St. Petersburg as a translator, he's quite a bit more seasoned now, the United States, it exists now, 
John Quincy was working as a diplomat in Europe when he received orders from his father, President John Adams, hey dad, that he was to go to Berlin to secure a commercial treaty with the Prussians. Uh, the Prussians are basically proto-Germany. So John Quincy hopped on his horse and he rode to Berlin, and when he got to the gates of the city, he announced himself as the ambassador from the United States of America. And the guard said, United States of America? What's that? And I have no idea what accent this is, by the way. They had never heard of the country. And when John Quincy tried to explain, they thought he was making it up. And I like to pretend that the next five minutes played out like a Monty Python skit. The United States of America? Yeah, right! Next you're gonna tell me the people elect their leaders and there isn't a king in charge. I mean, better than some watery tart throwing a sword at you. But come on, that's just silly. John Quincy wasn't let in until a senior officer arrived who had heard of the United States of America and could confirm that yes, it was a real country, and it was a very silly place. So yeah, not a knee slapper, but I find it very humorous that a future president once walked up to a city and couldn't get in because the guards thought he was making the United States of America up. Anyway, let's get to the epic story, Napoleon. We've seen quite a bit of France and Napoleon over the past few episodes. James Monroe even met Napoleon when he signed the Louisiana Purchase. But John Quincy will be in Europe for the climactic finale of the Napoleonic drama. And he won't be just anywhere in Europe. He'll be in St. Petersburg, Russia, the court of the Tsar, when Napoleon invades with 700,000 men. Okay, so... What's going on here? A bit of background. When John Quincy first arrived in St. Petersburg in 1809, it was basically the only major power left on continental Europe that Napoleon had not subjugated. England stood alone against France, safely behind the English Channel and its huge navy, and England and France were still very much at odds. Russia they just wanted to stay neutral and trade with both sides, similar to the United States this time. In this case, the British said sure. The British kind of needed that, because it allowed them to access goods from the rest of Europe through Russian ports. But Napoleon, he said hell no. Napoleon was trying to force the British to capitulate through something called the Continental System, which was basically an embargo banning all European trade with England. If this sounds familiar, the Americans were trying the same thing right now, but the American economy was so small that it really just put us into a depression. Napoleon, though, with almost all of Europe under his control, this thing might work. Russia played along for a bit, but then got tired of it, and eventually stopped complying altogether. So Napoleon decided to force the issue and invade. And given Napoleon's track record at this point of, well, basically destroying everybody, things didn't look too good for Russia. Almost every diplomat fled St. Petersburg. I mean, you'd be crazy to stay, right? Even the Tsar left town to coordinate the army. But, well, John Quincy stayed. And it must have been pretty surreal sitting there in a ghost town capital as grim tidings came in every day from the front because the French were pounding the Russians. The Russian army soon stopped offering pitch battles altogether and just retreated further and further east, 
famously destroying all the food and supplies they couldn't carry with them. By autumn, the French had occupied Moscow. But someone sparked a fire and the city burned down. Without food or shelter, and with the harsh Russian winter rapidly setting in, the French were forced to retreat, and Russian cavalry attacked these fleeing Frenchmen the whole way out, roughly 600 miles. Of the 700,000 men Napoleon invaded with, only 120,000 made it back to the west. Five of every six men failed to make it home. Napoleon's fortunes would never recover, and John Quincy had a front seat to the whole show. About a year after Napoleon was defeated and banished to the Mediterranean island of Elba, John Quincy was sent to Paris to build relations with the restored French monarchy. But, well, this trip was cut short because Napoleon wasn't done being Napoleon. Napoleon snuck off of Elba, landed in southern France, and rallied every French unit sent to stop him to his banner. Before you knew it, Napoleon recaptured Paris. He was back, and everybody was freaking out. Nations across Europe mobilized their armies, and John Quincy realized he had to get the heck out of Paris while the getting was good. He rushed to the coast and boarded one of the last ships off the mainland before a British blockade went into effect. He then watched from England as Napoleon reigned for 100 days before the armies of Europe confronted him at Waterloo and dealt him his final defeat. This time, the defeated Napoleon was banished to the desolate island of St. Helena in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. This time, he was banished for good. So that's pretty crazy. I just can't imagine being caught in that drama, being in Russia during Napoleon's invasion, being in Paris during Napoleon's return from exile. What an adventure! So that's the epic story from John Quincy's years of diplomacy. Now, it's time for the career-defining story. Back when John Quincy was serving as ambassador in St. Petersburg, word had arrived from the United States that President James Madison had talked Congress into declaring war on Great Britain, while Great Britain was distracted by that great Napoleonic invasion of Russia. The War of 1812 was put into motion. But once Napoleon was defeated the first time, so this is before his return from exile, the British were able to turn their attention to the Americans. But no matter how many defeats the British inflicted on the Americans, including burning down the capital at D.C., we just couldn't seem to learn how to surrender. So in 1814, the British began talks with a commission of American ambassadors led by John Quincy Adams in the city of Ghent, Belgium. This, by the way, was not John Quincy's first peace negotiation. He'd actually clerked for his dad three decades earlier when John Adams was negotiating the Treaty of Paris to end the Revolutionary War. Observing how those negotiations went, just being a wallflower there, that must have been awfully helpful when he took his seat at this peace table in 1814. The peace negotiations were not easy. Every time word reached Ghent that one side or another had won a skirmish or a battle, that side would press for more concessions from the other side. And that's not even taking into account how far apart the two sides were when negotiations began. I mean, Britain's opening list of demands included moving the Canadian border 150 miles south, 
control of most of Maine, the demilitarization of the American West, and the establishment of a Native American buffer state in Wisconsin, Illinois, Michigan, Indiana, and Ohio. Obviously, John Quincy wasn't having it, so the diplomats kept at it day after day until, on December 24, 1814, peace was found. The Treaty of Ghent ended the War of 1812 and restored everything to the way it had been before the war began. No land gained, no land lost. Which, given how poorly the war had gone for the Americans, and how much the British had originally been asking for, this was quite an achievement. John Quincy later said the day he signed the treaty was, quote, the happiest day of my life, because it was the day on which I had my share in restoring peace to the world. And that pretty much takes us to the end of John Quincy's years abroad. I told you a funny story, what's the United States? An epic story, Napoleon's fall, and a career-defining story, the Treaty of Ghent. But there was a lot I had to skip over. To, to skim the surface of what else happened during these years, John Quincy turned down a nomination to the Supreme Court. He was elected to the Senate during a brief stint back in the States. He negotiated a treaty to demilitarize the Great Lakes with Great Britain, and he married Louisa Catherine Johnson. Aww. In 1817, President James Monroe invited 50-year-old John Quincy Adams back to the United States, this time to serve in the prestigious role of Secretary of State. At this point, three presidents in a row had previously served as Secretaries of State, so when Monroe put John Quincy in that position, it was a way of signaling he thought John Quincy had what it took to be president. John Quincy was a solid Secretary of State. He secured the border with British Canada from the Great Lakes to the Rocky Mountains. Remember how Britain was wanting that border 150 miles south? After this treaty, that wouldn't come up again. He also got England to agree to joint control of the Oregon Territory, which was a really nice coup. But the biggest feather in his hat might have been Florida. When Andrew Jackson, a military general and future political rival and president, invaded Spanish Florida in 1818, basically because President Monroe manipulated him into doing it, John Quincy played diplomatic hardball with Spain to get them to give Florida up. He basically said, look, we've occupied Florida. So you can either sign this piece of paper saying you're giving us Florida and your claim to the Oregon Territory in exchange for $5 million and a sliver of North Texas, or you cannot sign the paper, not get anything, and we'll just keep Florida, and do you really think you can hold on to Oregon? Spain signed the paper, and the United States paid up and gained Florida and further claim to Oregon and surrendered its claim to North Texas. But don't worry. We'll get Texas back later. And that takes us to the end of the Monroe presidency, which means it's time for the election of 1824, when 56-year-old John Quincy Adams, who has been serving his country since the age of 14, will finally run for president. And <laughs> he's going to have a hell of a time winning it. The election of 1824 is easily one of the craziest, if not the craziest, presidential elections in American history. 
five major candidates will run. And spoiler alert, none of them will win in the Electoral College. It's going to be fun. Okay, so let's start by catching our breath and looking at John Quincy's resume. John Quincy has served as Secretary of State. He negotiated an end to the War of 1812. He negotiated Spain's surrender of Florida. He secured trade agreements and favorable borders all over the place. It's a very impressive resume. I mean, he's basically been serving the country since he turned 14. But he is by no means a shoe-in. There are four other strong contenders for the presidency, and it's going to be a free-for-all. Let's start with the long shots. You had John C. Calhoun, a former South Carolina congressman, war hawk, and secretary of war under Monroe, who looks absolutely crazy in portrait. I strongly encourage you Google this guy. John C. Calhoun looks like an evil Doc Brown from Back to the Future. And seeing as how he loves slavery, evil is a good word for him. You also had William H. Crawford, a popular former Georgia senator who spent the past eight years as Monroe's Secretary of Treasury. He was most popular with the old guard of Jeffersonian Republican elites, like Jefferson and Madison, who were still around. They really liked him. And then came the more serious contenders, Henry Clay and Andrew Jackson. Henry Clay was the powerful Speaker of the House and one of the commissioners who helped John Quincy negotiate the Treaty of Ghent. He was a fervent war hawk from Kentucky who advocated something he called the American system. It called for a standing army to defend the nation, forts, roads, and canals to help that army defend the nation, and a series of tariffs to raise money for the army, forts, roads, and canals. He'd also negotiated the Missouri Compromise of 1820, a deal that admitted Missouri as a slave state, Maine as a free state, set the boundary between slave and free states in the future, and averted a very serious threat of civil war. It's a pretty good resume. Andrew Jackson, though, he might have been the biggest dog of the bunch. And the reason was a shift in how the United States elected its presidents. Over the past decade or so, new western states had incentivized migration by allowing their electors for the Electoral College to be chosen by popular vote, rather than, say, being chosen by the state legislature, as most states had done. They had also done away with the property requirement to vote, so more people could vote. And this move out west pressured eastern states to start following suit on both fronts. Of the 24 states up for grabs in 1824, 18 picked their electors by popular vote, and 6 let the state's legislatures choose. Winning the presidency used to be about relating to those state legislators. Now, it was about relating to the average American. And nobody related to the average American better than Andrew Jackson. First off, Jackson was a war hero. When John Quincy and Henry Clay were busy negotiating an end to the War of 1812, Andrew Jackson was busy winning it. Or, that's what most Americans had come to believe. Jackson defeated a massive British army near New Orleans right before word of peace came from Ghent. 
so Americans conflated the two events and gave credit to Jackson, even though that battle came after the Treaty of Ghent had been negotiated. Jackson had also conquered Spanish Florida, and he was considered a hero of the Indian Wars, although I don't think any Native American listeners would say there's anything heroic about the way he massacred Native American enemies and betrayed Native American allies. Victory had made Jackson incredibly popular, but it had done nothing to calm his legendary temper. As the election of 1824 approached, John Quincy was President Monroe's favorite to replace him, but John Quincy refused to actively campaign. Like his father, he felt the president should be chosen because he was best for the role, not because he had groveled or begged for it. This may have been how the founding fathers thought elections would be run, but it was already becoming old-fashioned, and John Quincy's rivals, especially Andrew Jackson, campaigned far more vigorously. Not personally, of course. No candidate for president would be leading rallies until 1840, but by writing letters and hosting dinner parties to influence the political elite. John Quincy didn't even want to do that. The race quickly narrowed. Calhoun, who had nominated himself because nobody else would, he realized he didn't have enough national appeal to win, so he dropped out of the presidential race and ran for vice president instead, which nobody else was doing, so he won by default. Clever, that. Crawford, meanwhile, suffered a stroke. He made a decent recovery, and he had the support of Jefferson and Madison and, and this new, young, New York politician named Martin Van Buren, but Crawford wasn't going to win. It seemed to be down to John Quincy, Jackson, and Clay. But as the election neared, John Quincy noticed Jackson's surging lead as one by one states cast their votes over a period of three months. There was not a national election day back then as there is today. This was a prolonged process. Despairing at Jackson's growing lead, John Quincy suspended his campaign, if you'll call him sitting around hoping to win a campaign. The final results came in. 153,000 votes and 99 electors for Andrew Jackson. 114,000 votes and 84 electors for John Quincy Adams. 47,000 votes and 41 electors for Crawford and 47,000 votes and 37 electors for Henry Clay. So Jackson had more votes and more electors than any other candidate, but he did not have a majority, just a plurality. So, by law, the election passed to the House of Representatives, where every state would be allowed one vote by which to select the next president. Now, this had been Henry Clay's plan the whole time. As Speaker of the House, he was incredibly powerful here, and he knew he could win the presidency if the election made it to the House and if he were a candidate in the House. But that if was a killer if. A recent constitutional amendment said that only the top three performers in the Electoral College could go to a runoff in the House. And remember, Clay had finished fourth behind Jackson, John Quincy, and stroke victim Crawford. 
so Henry Clay could not be president. But he could be kingmaker. As the election went to the House, Andrew Jackson was the favorite. States generally weren't winner-take-all back then, so this isn't exact math, but Jackson had roughly won eight states, and John Quincy had roughly won six. The other ten had gone to Clay or Crawford and were up for grabs. Nobody knew which way they would go. Except maybe Henry Clay. Freed by the impossibility of becoming president, Henry Clay had dinner with John Quincy shortly before the House was set to vote. During this dinner, Clay told John Quincy that he'd prefer him to that hot-headed military chieftain, Andrew Jackson. When the House of Representatives voted, Henry Clay pressured every state, not just the ones he won, to cast their ballots for John Quincy rather than Jackson or Crawford. Even in states where John Quincy hadn't received a single vote as a result of Clay's influence, John Quincy won the election in the House and became the sixth president of the United States, beating Jackson 13-7 to with Crawford picking up the final four states. The election was won. But it's not time for John Quincy's presidency just yet. Five days after winning this runoff election, John Quincy announced that once he became president, Henry Clay would be his secretary of state. This was an incredibly bad idea. Many Americans were already disgusted that the candidate who won the most votes, Jackson, and the most electors, Jackson, hadn't been named president. The people's will was being usurped. And did you catch how I mentioned Henry Clay made a state that hadn't even cast a single vote for John Quincy support him in the House of Representatives? What was that about? Andrew Jackson was especially livid, calling Henry Clay a Judas and alleging John Quincy had won Clay's support by a corrupt bargain. A promise of a presidency in exchange for the Secretary of State role. It was an allegation that was probably BS. Clay would have made a great Secretary of State for any president, and Clay needed no incentive to favor John Quincy to Jackson. He hated Jackson. But appearances are everything in politics, and this accusation would haunt Clay the rest of his life. And so, on March 4th, 1825, under a cloud of discontent, John Quincy Adams, the son of a former president who had negotiated an end to the War of 1812, the acquisition of Florida, and served the nation since the age of 14, was sworn in as the sixth president of the United States of America. He reported to the Capitol in Washington, D.C., where his presidency promptly went off the rails. But first, what did the nation and the world look like when John Quincy became president? Let's look around. Internationally, the world was at peace, and there were no threats on the horizon. The United States had a ton of newly independent neighbors to the south, where just about all of Latin America had won independence from Portugal or Spain. Domestically, 
the economy was doing great. All that westward migration that happened during the Monroe presidency was starting to populate the Midwest and unlock its economic potential. The South was increasingly building its economy around cotton, and the North was increasingly leaning toward industry, which will be important in a moment. Overall, it was a good time to become president. And John Quincy had big, bold ideas for how to further develop the country. He'd been all over Europe. He knew what worked. He wanted to create a national university, expand the nation's roads and infrastructure, and invest in science with the construction of observatories to study the night skies. But none of it ever went anywhere, because he didn't do a good job selling his vision, because nobody wanted to raise taxes to pay for it, and, well, because of Andrew Jackson. Jackson may have lost the election, but, <laughs> well, did he? I mean, he had won a plurality of the popular vote and electoral college delegates. People were still really PO'd about this corrupt bargain thing, and Jackson just kept reminding them about it. Jackson had enough loyalists in Congress that while he might not have been in office, he did hold political power, and he used it to block John Quincy's priorities at every turn. When John Quincy tried to mollify Jackson by offering him the position of Secretary of War, Jackson didn't even bat an eye. The old Jeffersonian Republican Party was dying, and a new Democratic Party was rapidly growing with Jackson at its heart. How did this make John Quincy feel about Jackson? <laughs> well, when his alma mater, Harvard, gave Jackson an honorary degree many years later, John Quincy said he would not, quote, be present to witness Harvard's disgrace in conferring its highest honors upon a barbarian who could not write a sentence of grammar and could hardly spell his own name. So yeah, the uh, dislike, it was mutual. And you might be thinking, okay, we get it, Kenny, but surely something happened during the John Quincy presidency. He can't have really accomplished nothing, right? All right, I'll give you three examples of how futile the John Quincy administration was. First, remember how I said most of Latin America had recently won its independence from Spain and Portugal? Someone came up with the idea of holding a conference in Panama where these new American nations could develop commercial and diplomatic ties with another, which, like, I mean, that's a great idea. But when John Quincy tried to send a delegate to the conference, he was blocked by Congress for months, so that when the delegate was finally approved, he was unable to arrive until Congress was over. And this, by the way, is considered his one accomplishment <laughs> of his administration. Okay, do you want to know why Congress blocked this? A, because John Quincy was asking, and B, because some of those new Latin American countries had abolished slavery, and Southern congressmen didn't want to do anything that might signal support for ending slavery. So, that's one example of the Adams administration's impotency. Here's another, and it's a biggie. In 1828, the growing Democratic Party passed a controversial tariff just to force Adams to pick a side on it, knowing that no matter what he did, he'd piss off one half of the country or the other. This tariff is basically going to take the country to the brink of civil war in a bit, so we're going to go in a bit of detail on it and I apologize if this is a little elementary. 
A tariff is basically a tax Americans pay on foreign imports. If you set tariffs low, consumers might be a little annoyed, but they'll keep buying and you'll raise a lot of money. If you set the tariffs high, you can make an import so expensive that it's cheaper to buy a locally made product instead. This is called a protective tariff. For example, if I put a 2,000% tariff on foreign bananas so that they cost $10 a banana instead of 50 cents a banana, you can bet American farmers would start growing a ton of bananas and selling them at $9 a banana. American banana growers win, everybody else loses. During the mid to late 1820s, there were a bunch of industries trying to pop up in the Northeast, but they kept failing because European imports were too cheap to compete with. The tariff of 1828 applied only to goods produced by these northeastern industries. It was a protective tariff, which meant northern industries could finally grow and raise their prices, and growth meant more jobs and more money in that region's economy. So the north was going to win pretty big if the tariff passed, and it was going to feel like it lost if the tariff was vetoed. What about the south, though? None of those protected industries had factories located in the South. So the South would see no benefits of the tariff. What they would see is higher prices on goods they used to be able to import cheaply from Europe. The South looked at this tariff as highway robbery, a direct siphoning of American wealth from South to North. Southerners soon dubbed the tariff the Tariff of Abominations. And John Quincy signed it, and the South was livid. And you might be wondering, if this tariff was the Democrats' idea, why did only John Quincy get in trouble for it? (laughs) And the answer is, the Democrats, they lied. Northern Democrats told their constituents that the Democratic Party was pro-tariff. Southern Democrats told their constituents that the Democratic Party was anti-tariff. And let's be real, the average schmo can only really keep up with what the president is doing. And the average schmo saw John Quincy sign the tariff into law. So he is never going to get that Southern vote again. And you know how I promised this tariff would take us to the brink of civil war? That will come in our next episode about Andrew Jackson's presidency. So be excited for that. Want to hear one more example of how futile the John Quincy administration was? This is a quick one. In 1826, halfway through his administration, John Quincy's vice president, John C. Calhoun, he came out in support of Andrew Jackson for president. Harsh! It shouldn't surprise anyone that Andrew Jackson destroyed John Quincy in the 1828 presidential election, casting him out of the White House with a 178 to 83 defeat in the Electoral College. All right, so John Quincy has just been voted out of the White House, which means we're almost to my favorite part of the story, the anti-slavery part. But before we get there, let's look at how the United States changed during John Quincy's four years in office. Territory-wise, nothing changed. From 1824 to 1828, there's no new land and there are no new states. Internally, The biggest news was the opening of the 1825 Erie Canal in New York. This was huge for a couple of reasons. First, the economic impact was seismic. 
Western goods could now travel directly from the Great Lakes down the canal to New York City and the Northeast. Before, they had to travel down the Mississippi River, through New Orleans, around Florida, and up the Atlantic coast. Just look at a map. You are trimming thousands of miles off that journey by opening the Erie Canal. The cost of Western goods in the Northeast dropped 90%, and New York City vaulted past New Orleans as the country's busiest port, and past Philadelphia as its largest banking center. The other big thing about the Erie Canal is it was built entirely with state or private funding, no federal dollars. Small government Democrats would point to the Erie Canal for the next several decades as proof that the federal government shouldn't be involved in infrastructure projects. Internationally, a world weary of the Napoleonic Wars was largely at peace, and the first public railway opened in England in 1825, so we're about to get trains. Anyway, like I said, it's a fairly quiet presidency, but get ready, because John Quincy is about to come roaring back to Washington, D.C. as a champion of the anti-slavery movement, and no matter how hard his enemies try, nobody is going to shut him up. The final great phase of John Quincy's life begins in 1830, a year after leaving the presidency. Boston was celebrating its bicentennial, so John Quincy rode in to join the festivities. While there, a couple local politicians came to him with a proposal. A reverend who represented John Quincy's congressional district was going to step down to tend to his church. These two local politicians wanted to know, would John Quincy like to run for the seat? If he ran, they promised nobody would run against him. True to form, John Quincy said he wouldn't actively campaign, and if elected, he wouldn't join any political party. He was going to be an independent. And I mean, this was true of John Quincy as a president. This was true of him in his earlier runs in Congress and Senate. He never really was a party man. Well, this sounded good enough to the people of his community, and he was easily elected to Congress in 1831. And John Quincy made quite the arrival. During his first days in Congress, John Quincy presented a petition written by Pennsylvania Quakers. So these aren't people in his district, but he did not care, because this petition was about an issue he was about to dedicate the rest of his career to. The end of slavery. Most of Congress booed John Quincy when they realized what the petition he was reading was about. But out across the country, a growing number of abolitionists loved it. Every day, John Quincy received more and more petitions against slavery to read to Congress, and he did so with relish. And he didn't stop there. He also introduced amendments saying nobody could be born into slavery, or all new states had to be free. They didn't go anywhere, but it really pissed the South off. So why had it taken John Quincy this long to jump into the fight against slavery? Well, honestly, he was never really around it. His family never owned slaves at home, and he'd spent almost his entire professional career in Europe, where there was no slavery. The first time he really had to think about it was the Missouri Compromise of 1820. Remember that? When Missouri wanted to be admitted as a state, and Southerners said, sure, but only as a slave state, 
And Northerners said, heck no, only as a free state. And there was talk of secession until Henry Clay negotiated his compromise. Well, John Quincy was a member of President Monroe's cabinet when that was happening, and he unsuccessfully argued that slavery should be banned from all new states, saying, quote, What can be more false and heartless than this doctrine which makes the first and holiest rights of humanity to depend on the color of the skin? Which, you know, like, hell yeah, man! John Quincy went along with the Missouri Compromise because he considered it preferable to civil war, but he later wondered if they should have forced the issue then and there, saying, quote, I take it for granted that the present question is a mere preamble, a title page to a great tragic volume. In 1836, Southern representatives got so sick of John Quincy's anti-slavery antics, he had been at it for six years now that they came up with a scheme to stop him. An unconstitutional scheme. A Southern representative proposed a ban on all petitions, propositions, or papers relating to slavery. John Quincy rose to protest this, like, whatever happened to freedom of speech, man? But the Speaker of the House, a Westerner and future president named James K. Polk, he refused to allow him to speak. Instead, Polk recognized a series of Southern slaveholders before declaring, oops, we're out of time, let's vote, and the resolution narrowly passed. It was now illegal for John Quincy to read petitions against slavery in Congress. As John Quincy attempted to raise his voice over this injustice, Southern representatives drowned him out with shouts of, order, order, driving a frustrated John Quincy to bark back, Am I gagged or am I not? And this exclamation gave the rule its name, the gag rule. But John Quincy wasn't one to let a bullcrap law like the gag rule get in his way. He went into full-on smart-ass mode. Oh, I'm not reading a petition against slavery. I am reading a prayer against slavery. How do you like them apples? But then the Southerners banned prayers about slavery, too and the two sides continued their battle of semantics for eight years. Ultimately, John Quincy emerged victorious over the gag rule in 1844, when he built a coalition of congressmen who, they may not have supported abolition, but they did support freedom of speech. Together, they killed the gag rule and set John Quincy's voice free. Which is pretty awesome, right? But there's more. John Quincy's fight against slavery didn't just play out in Congress. In 1841, he found himself arguing against the evils of slavery before the United States Supreme Court in a case known as the Amistad case. The Amistad was a Spanish ship carrying men and women who had been stolen from Africa to be sold as slaves in the Americas. Before reaching their destination, the captives broke free and overpowered the ship's crew, then ordered them to sail back to Africa. The white crew took them to American waters instead, where the ship was captured and the Africans imprisoned, which raised legal questions. Were these Africans to be punished as escaped slaves? As pirates? Or were they to be freed as innocent victims acting in self-defense? The district court had ruled that they were justified to revolt, 
but President Martin Van Buren. Yeah, he's president now. Martin Van Buren attempted to court Southern voters by having his attorney general appeal the decision to the Supreme Court. The abolitionist lawyers who had represented the Africans in the district court had run out of money, so all but two had to quit. Realizing they needed help, the two remaining lawyers approached John Quincy about joining their team, and John Quincy accepted. The Supreme Court that John Quincy argued before was mostly composed of Southern slaveholders, which is what happens when you've had pro-slavery Southern presidents for 32 of the past 36 years. So this wasn't promising for John Quincy's chances. But John Quincy's arguments, including a closing argument that urged the justices to look beyond contemporary politics and to consider their legacy and their God, convinced them to set the Africans free. It was a shocking legal victory. John Quincy's victory in the Amistad case, along with his negotiation of the Treaty of Ghent, were his two proudest accomplishments in life. But the Amistad case earned John Quincy a lot of hate mail. Can you imagine how much this freaked the South out? What? Black slaves can kill white men who put them into slavery? and be declared justified victims, and be allowed to return to Africa? What if my slaves kill me? Yeah, John Quincy totally got death threats for this one. On February 21st, 1848, at the age of 80, an elderly John Quincy Adams took his seat in Congress on a momentous day. The United States had spent the past several years waging war on Mexico. A war John Quincy opposed because he saw it as a land grab designed to add more slave states to the Union. We'll talk more about this when we get to President Polk. On this day, though, the United States was celebrating victory in that war. As the Senate considered the treaty that would end the war, a resolution was raised in the House of Representatives to thank the nation's generals for victory. More than a hundred eyes rang out in support of the resolution followed by a loud and lonely neigh. John Quincy Adams, true to his father's legacy, was willing to stand alone in the name of what was right. That no was the last word John Quincy would utter in Congress. When a roll call vote was called, and John Quincy's turn came to rise and cast his vote, he faltered. John Quincy grabbed his desk, and then he fell into the arms of the congressman next to him. Mr. Adams is dying, the shocked realization rang out. He was having a stroke. A couch was brought in for John Quincy to lay on, and he was moved to the Speaker of the House's office. He thanked those around him and called for his old ally, Henry Clay, and the two shared a moment. John Quincy whispered, This is the end of the earth, but I am composed. And then he slipped into a coma. John Quincy died two days later. February 23rd, 1848, right there in the Capitol building. As one eulogist put it, where would death have found him except at the place of duty? You will not find a more epic presidential death ever. Dying in the defense of freedom in the Capitol building? I love this guy. Okay, so what can we learn from John Quincy Adams? I think the biggest lesson is, 
We all say we want that independent president who doesn't play party politics and who just does what's right for the country. But John Quincy was that president, and his administration was a failure because of it. The sad truth is success in politics requires a little political gamesmanship. You need to reward supporters with patronage so they can support you in return when you need it. You want to be part of a party that has your back so you're not going it alone. We like to think democracy means the best ideas went out through debate, but it doesn't. Democracy means that if you want your ideas to become law, you need to build relationships, build arguments, and build a majority to enact change. Thank you for joining today's episode of Abridged Presidential Histories. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe and leave a five-star review on your podcast listening platform of choice. You can also follow the show on Facebook at Abridged Presidential Histories or on Twitter at APH Podcast. If you'd like to support the show, you can look it up on Patreon or go directly to www.patreon.com slash abridged presidential histories. The music in today's podcast is a public domain recording of the United States Old Army Guard Fife and Drum Corps. The primary biography for today's episode was John Quincy Adams by Harlow G. Unger. In our next episode, we'll take a look at the life and presidency of Andrew Jackson, who, I hate to break it to you, is kind of an asshole. He'll kill some folks, commit a little ethnic cleansing, get elected president, and then destroy the economy. But hey, we'll still put him on the $20 bill. That's next time on Abridged Presidential Histories.